tonight's thought. It's not every day you get hailed as a hero at the Dunkin' Donuts, and uh, you get a free donut. Yeah, this happened to me yesterday. It was quite amazing. It's one of those rare moments that I think will stick out in my life, at least for a few weeks. I don't like to have my uh, my life and my memories ruled by negative feelings. Unless they're followed by positive ones. And this was one uh this is one of those incidents I think you could count on. Yeah, this woman. Uh well, I was standing in line at Dunkin Donuts on, you know, yesterday. And uh I was running a little bit late for work. And uh, I went in there just to get a coffee because this uh, the, the, the drive-thru was backed up like you wouldn't believe. And it's this great secret. I don't think it's really a secret. I think everybody knows it. That if you just like, you know, park in an empty parking lot next to a busy drive-thru, you know, you could just walk right in and uh, be in and out before the uh, line even moves in the drive-thru. And I'm thinking, you know, it's a Friday and... Uh, and I haven't had any coffee. I woke up uh, that morning and there was no, there were no more Keurig pods left. And I'm like, I know this. I, I know if I just go on into the uh, cafe that I'll be able to get out in and out. No problem. And I go in and uh, they immediately serve me and they give me the coffee before I can even get my order out. And I'm surprised about this. You know, Dunkin' Donuts is usually pretty slow no matter what happens. But this time they were fast. And I ordered a sandwich because I was feeling a little cocky. I'm like, oh, you got my coffee? Okay, let's see if you can get this. You know. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, okay, sandwich, fine. So, so it takes a couple of minutes because they got to throw it in the oven or whatever, or the microwave. And... Uh, I'm sitting there, and uh, all of a sudden, I hear this voice out of the corner of my eye. I need to speak to your manager. I'm like, oh, no, this is like a bad piece of performance art. You know, clearly, people know in this day and age that there is like this entitlement culture. And it, the catchphrase of it is, uh, let me speak to your manager. <laughs> And I was like, am I in the middle of like a flash mob? Is somebody doing a public improvisation? I don't know. And I look up and uh, sure enough, there's this uh, woman looking very angry, demanding that this woman in an incredibly understaffed Dunkin' Donuts go, goes and gets the manager. You know, this is the thing that's happening now in America. It's like everywhere you go, everything is understaffed, especially fast food restaurants. Nobody wants to work in them anymore. And, of, of course, you know, with the unemployment relief uh, last year, uh, you know, people are still staying home. They're they're not getting out there and, uh, and, and restoring the workforce. So every place is understaffed. Uh, and, and, and I wonder if this woman knows this because before long – uh, she's got somebody else, I guess the shift supervisor, coming up to tell her that the manager will not be there until 10 o'clock. And, of course, this infuriates the woman. 
And she says, well, I need to speak to them right now, and I'm not leaving until I do. And they said, well, you can wait. You, you know, it'll, it'll be a couple of hours. <laughs> it was about 7.30 in the morning. And uh, they said, may I assist you with something, ma'am? And uh, she says, well, I come in the drive-thru, and I order some hash browns, and they don't give me hash browns. They give me everything else I got but hash browns. And I just want to know why you do this to your customers. And they just kind of are now, by, by this point, everybody in the Dunkin' Donuts is now staring at this woman. And uh, I could hardly believe this. The only way that I could believe it is I'm sitting there drinking my coffee and watching this whole situation unfold, um, very quickly realizing that it is real, is because I did work in the service industry for quite some time. I was the, the, the guy behind the counter who was asked for the manager. Um, I would have to, you know, people would just have these insane expectations. And very often it wasn't even really something that you did. It wasn't something that the store did. It's something else in this person's life that is going wrong. Very, very wrong. And uh, you were just the poor receiver of it. So, so I'm realizing this is happening and, uh, and I'm kind of getting up and walking over to the counter just like, uh, because I'm, I'm uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable in situations like that because you feel for the people behind the counter and you just have to do something physical in the moment to, uh, readjust yourself. And, uh, so I, I get up and I go over to the counter and, um, you know, again, the, the, the woman behind the counter, the, the, the shift supervisor is like, I'm sorry, ma'am. You know, the manager's not in. And she's like, I just, uh, they say, you know, can we give you another, some more hash browns? And she's like, I don't want any more hash browns. I want an apology. And they say to the woman, well, again, we're, we are sorry for this. Can we give you your money back? And she's like, I don't want any money. I don't need $3. I need an apology. And I forgot before she said, like, I, I'm not hungry anymore. I don't want the hash browns. I just want an apology. And so it's just uh, this insane thing where they're like, well, we, we, we are sorry. And they're like, I want the manager to apologize. And they say, well, the manager will be here at 10 o'clock. So this just goes on and on in circles. And meanwhile, more and more people are backing up in the drive through You can hear horns honking. Uh, there are people behind me. More and more people are walking in. The bell is dinging over the door and it's just getting to this fever pitch of nerves. And you could tell like these poor people behind the counter, just doing everything they can to get back to work, but she won't let them. And, uh, I check my watch and I am, I am indeed running late and I should not have come in here because I knew something like this. Uh, God does not want me to be happy in Dunkin in Dunkin donuts. I'm fairly concerned about that. Uh, every time I go into Dunkin, something happens. You know, they forget my order. Uh, the microwave breaks. I, I don't know. Somebody comes in and orders 18 coffees and they have to brew new coffee. So I have to wait this time. Everything was going right. And then this woman comes in and ruins everything. And I, it, it makes me irritated a little bit. It kind of pisses me off. And I start to open my mouth and, uh, I don't even think about the consequences, but I'm just kind of a little irritated. And I told this woman, I chime in. I never do this before, but I am running late. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a stressful day. It's been a stressful month and everything just comes out in this one moment. I say to this woman, ma'am, I think it was an accident. You're holding everybody up. They apologized. Let's move on. 
And so the woman looked at me and she started laughing. And I think initially she was kind of trying to register it. There was like this uh, blankness there, this silence. And uh, she started laughing with me because I had a little bit of a smile on my face while we were, while this was happening. Cause I was trying to bring some levity to the situation, just trying to remind her of how ridiculous it is that she's asking for a, an apology over some hash browns. And uh, <laughs> even when she's not hungry anymore, but no, I, I realize uh, that she thinks that I'm on her side. She thinks that like there's suddenly going to be like an army of Dunkin' Donuts customers teaming up against these like three people behind the counter. And then she quickly realizes, no, that's not happening. He's actually against me. He's 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 actually on the side of these people behind the counter. And it's the weirdest thing because normally when something like this happens, when I'm confrontational, you know, I get very tense. I'm not a confrontational person at all. So I was getting tense. I, I usually get tense and I, I get choked up and I have a hard time saying my arguments and making complete sentences. And, and this is just a problem that I've had ever since I was bullied in elementary school for my last name. But this time it's weird. It's like, uh, because the moment is so inconsequential to me. And I think it's because I've got so many other things in my mind about getting to work and, you know, and the woman does something that nobody has ever done before in the history of my confrontations. She walks away without saying a single thing. It's like in that moment, I've said everything and it just clicks on this woman. I think that, oh my God, I'm making an ass of myself. And she gets up and walks away. And uh, there it is. And the manager, or the assistant shift supervisor, whoever it was, I kind of secretly believe that she was the manager, comes over and she's like, have a donut on me. So I was a hero in the Dunkin' Donuts. It's nice. Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, this is your Midnight Citizen Show. I'm Mike Booty. Thank you so much for joining me. We are live tonight here in the studio. It's a very rainy night outside. I've got the window up. Of course, the rain... As soon as I needed it to start raining so that I could have this nice little ambience, this background, stopped. Of course, nothing can, not everything can always go right, but uh, hopefully everything else will. Here on a Saturday night, welcome into the show. Oh, yes. And, um, you know, the interesting thing about what happened in that Dunkin' Donuts cafe yesterday on Friday morning was um, the fact that this was 
This is part of a phenomenon that has been uh, going on in recent years, and I've been hearing my students talk about it a lot. I am a, a, a high school English teacher, and very often they will throw terms at me from the internet which I become increasingly distanced from as I grow older. Um, You know, the whole thing now is memes and people talking about memes and referencing memes. And, and uh, I I don't necessarily get onto that because it kind of creates this whole lexicon that I'm just not clear about. And it becomes very difficult and kind of stressful to keep up with all this stuff. And, uh, and a lot of these kids lately have been talking about uh, this uh, Karen phenomenon, you know, Karen, Karen, right? And sometimes Kins, if it's a man. Uh, but the idea of like a Karen is um, someone, who, generally a white woman with uh, short cut hair, which sounds very specific, um, who generally... Uh, flaunts her privilege and her entitlement um, in front of low-wage employees, generally asking, you know, I need to speak to the manager and all this. And and this is something that uh, that my students talk about quite a bit. And even uh, even when I was teaching a writing summer camp this week, I asked my students to create a story and uh, one of the one of the students actually did create a character, a story of a character called uh, Karen, who becomes very disgruntled um, in a pizza restaurant, a pizzeria, and uh, asks for the manager. And sure enough, this is not the first time this has happened. At a writing camp that I taught last week, another student also created a story with a character named Karen who gets upset at the manager of a grocery store and has to speak to the manager. And, uh, you know, these are, this is something that kids are talking about more and more. Um, and it's very fascinating because it's almost like this, uh, perceptive ability they have to mock and satirize, uh, adults. And, you know, this is not the first time, of course, this has happened. I think kids have always made fun of adults. It's like they're a way of getting power over people who are older than they are. It's also like the whole way that they will refer to anybody older than 18 or 19 as boomers, you know, because uh, it's like you try to explain something to them and they're like, okay, boomer. And, you know, that happens to me all the time as a teacher. But but this Karen thing I've always thought is a little bit uh, rude, and uh, incredibly uh, generalizing because it essentially puts uh, this negative stereotype on people, especially women um, who sometimes might have a good reason for wanting to speak to the manager. And and, and again, working in retail and and food service, uh, I know that sometimes, you know, you have to take these people seriously and I don't want to be raising an entire generation of kids who grow up thinking that if they're working in a low wage service industry, that they're automatically going to mock a customer that they have who wants to speak to the manager. That's a good way to lose a job. 
<laughs> and so uh, I always try to remind my students when they start talking about Karen and throwing that word around liberally that uh, let's just consider the facts here. But, um, you know, in this case, it's interesting. And I don't know if it's like the law of attraction because I've been talking with about Karen so much with my kids lately um, that this uh, this incident happened in Dunkin Donuts yesterday with this woman who was very clearly, um, <laughs> who was very clearly a Karen, you know, but, uh, I did, I was curious about this because as much as I've talked about this name and this, I don't know if you want to call it a meme, but this term, this catch-all term called Karen with my students, I've never actually gotten to the heart of it. I've never done research on it to find out where it comes from. And uh, when, when I got to work that day, I, I sat down for a few minutes and had my coffee and ate my sandwich that they finally got to me. I forgot to say that woman, the whole incident made the people behind the counter at Dunkin' Donuts completely forget my sandwich. So I waited there for 10 minutes before they finally realized <laughs> that I had ordered something else, that I wasn't just there to save the day from the Karen. Uh, but I did sit down and I, I did my research on this and, and, uh, I found out that the, the term essentially, uh, goes back to, uh, the 2016 Donald Trump election. Uh, that's when it started popping up more and more. And it, it started popping up to essentially describe, uh, Trumpettes, which is another term referring to, you know, white women who support Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, we, we just have these things that we love to call people, um, in society now. And, uh, anytime you have an opinion about anything, you're immediately labeled, which is, uh, something that supremely bugs me. Um, but that's beside the point. The term Karen came from trumpets essentially. And, uh, along with a bunch of incidents also, but, uh, primarily it, it grew also out of the black lives matter movement as a way for, for black people to essentially mock and satirize, um, entitled, you know, white privileged women who will berate and belittle African-American service workers. And that's exactly what was happening <laughs> at the Dunkin' Donuts, um, the other day. So, So, um, and it is very funny also because Thursday night, the night before the Dunkin' Donuts incident, a memory popped up on my Facebook feed. This was a story that I shared with my wife, uh, four years ago. Um, and the, the term Karen is never used, uh, in this story, but it nevertheless is very much a, um, a description, a perfect Karen description. Uh, the headline, uh, this happened, I believe, in Tennessee. The uh, headline says, a woman drop kicks Kroger cake, saying it was ruined. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole article, but the, uh, the meat of it essentially is that this woman goes in to pick up a Batman v Superman birthday cake for her seven-year-old son, and it's not exactly to her specifications. 
And so she comes behind the counter and she starts trying to decorate it herself. And they say that her health code restrictions, you know, you cannot be back here. And so she gets really mad. She picks up the birthday cake and apparently drops it and kicks it um, across the the bakery. <laughs> and uh, And then she is not satisfied there, so she goes up and repeatedly steps on the dismantled cake and uh, and then storms out and kicks over a wet floor sign on her way out. Um, and uh, she was later uh, she was later arrested for it. And interestingly, you know, it says that, um, you know, she was charged with disorderly conduct, but it was not her the first time that she was arrested. No, no, this had happened before. And no, it's not what you think. It was not uh, one day to the day after she was arrested the first time. It's not like she got mad at another birthday cake the year before. Uh, I don't know what it was for. It doesn't say, but, you know. But again, this is the thing. And and even though clearly the woman in Duncan was a little bit unstable to get mad over Duncan, you know, sometimes human beings make mistakes. Um, And uh, she just obviously probably knew that. I mean, people are, are rational and they want to, they understand. But again, sometimes people let little incidents like that stand in for much bigger issues in their lives. And I think that this is what's going on with this, uh, Kroger cake woman as well. The Kroger cake, Karen. <laughs> um, that's a good title for tonight's show, but I've already named tonight's show. It's called the Karen situation. Which is like a Pulp Fiction reference. I don't know. Kroger Kate Karen. Um, you know, clearly she had been charged with disorderly conduct before. So, so the woman obviously was suffering from mental health issues. So we don't always want to assume that people like this just don't have the capacity for logic like the rest of us do. Sometimes they just have bad days and they just need to come in and take it out on them. So... And, and I think I realized that, uh, when I, when I did open my mouth, even though I didn't even realize that I had until I started hearing myself talk, um, you know, I think it just, what I was saying in my head just came out loud and, but I was still very nice to the woman. I said, like, I think it was an accident. You're holding people up. Can we please move on? So I used the word please and did not say thank you, but nevertheless, you know, that is the uh, Karen situation. There it is. <laughs> there it is. So, what else? But I hope you are doing very, very well tonight, um, wherever you are. Saturday night, June 19th, 2021. Yeah, I've, I've been, I've had a very stressful month. Um, I had that theater dream again. Like, you know, you know, the theater dream, right? 
the theater dream is the one where you are essentially about to go on stage, right? And uh, you forget all of your lines. And you got to go on and perform. And you have absolutely no idea what you're going to say as soon as you get out there. You're going to disappoint a ton of people who paid for a ticket to come see your show. And uh, I have that dream from time to time. And I always thought it was just me, but uh, one time, one night I was having dinner with my wife and I told her my, I told my wife the dream and, you know, my, my wife is an actress and she said, oh yeah, every actor has that dream. And I said, well, I'm not an actor. And she says, everybody's an actor. (laughs) Which is profound. But, you know, generally having that dream um, around the time I've got to do a lot of stuff. I, uh, you know, people are expecting things from me. I've got a, res- a lot of responsibility. And uh, and that's been going on lately. I, I generally have that dream right before uh, the new school year starts. Of course, we just got out for summer. So why am I having this dream? Um. Uh, essentially the, the reason I'm having this dream is, uh, because, uh, I am going through some life changes right now. Well, some potential life changes. Uh, I don't really think anything's honestly going to change. I just am at that point where I am seriously for the first time in many years, reassessing certain things. And, uh, and I have been, uh, interviewing for new jobs lately. And, uh, by the way, this is not, I know that this is a podcast for public consumption. I have made the mistake before about uh, talking about work on my podcast. I've learned my lesson, okay? That time that I talked about work on my podcast resulted in the only time in the history of the 11-year run of this uh, of this show, The Midnight Citizen, that I've had to take down an episode. It was episode 94 from uh, August of 2014, right? Um but uh, I have let my boss know that I'm interviewing for other jobs um, just for the time being. I said, like, I would still like to work at this job, but my wife and I would simply like a change. And uh, we would like to consider moving to another city and just letting you know. Um, and I, I gave her, you know, a time when I would let her know my final decision. And it's Monday. So I've got to let my boss know on Monday whether or not I'm uh, going to continue to teach at my school next year. And um, I have been offered um, a couple of jobs. I've turned them both down because they just did not feel right. Um, I was offered a job teaching in Phoenix, and I was offered a job teaching in Nashville, Tennessee. And I turned the job down in Phoenix because simply I it just it's Phoenix. That's um, quite a move from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I think that's essentially moving to the same place you are in the southeast, only it's out west. Um, and um, but it seemed like a great school. Uh, I, I met the uh, the principal. I interviewed with her a couple of times. I interviewed with the staff. I mean, it was just a a week long process. And, uh, at the end of it, when they finally, um, gave me an answer and they, uh, they offered me the job. I just, um, I was just like, this is amazing, but 
You know, it's one of those things that just sounds amazing. Like, oh my God, just picking up a Birmingham boy and moving to Phoenix. Well, and then it's the reality and you kind of just get like tensed up at the idea of spending the rest of the summer moving to Phoenix and working with middle schoolers, which I worked with high schoolers. I mean, like one change at a time, you know, come on. So, and uh, the job in Nashville, I actually did consider quite heavily. I, I drove up last weekend to Nashville, uh, Tennessee, only two and a half hours away, still close to my family and my friend and my, my friends and my roots, right? Um, and I had a very nice stay there in Nashville. I drove up Friday night and uh, I stayed at a, a campground up there. I, I rented a cabin for the night and uh, sat out on the... Uh, porch as a matter of fact that was the uh, show art from last week's episode of the midnight citizen it's just me sitting on the cabin looking out at other cabins um very nice and uh woke up the next day and i drove and i looked at the school and i looked at this other school where uh, i had an interview this week Went around, looked at some neighborhoods, looked at some houses. Um, I did an internet search for like the best breakfast place in all of Nashville. And I went there. I wanted to see like something that like the best of Nashville had to offer. <laughs> and uh, and it was pretty good. I mean, I'm still like I'm, I'm still tasting that. I got, I got like this uh, scramble of like black beans and eggs and avocado. I mean, I could probably make it at my house, but, you know, <laughs> and I got a Bloody Mary. It's delicious. And, you know, I just drove around Nashville for a few hours, just kind of getting absorbed in the idea of living in a place other than Birmingham, Alabama, which I've been here practically my whole life. And uh, just, um, it was it was interesting because uh, I had never really fully considered moving to another city to the point where I'm actually driving around it looking at houses. It was a very surreal feeling in your late thirties to be thinking about a serious move like that. And, um, but I was driving around the city and, you know, this is like a city that has history that they make films about. Not that Birmingham doesn't, we were home to the, uh, civil rights movement, but like real, like cultural, like you're right there in the middle of country music central. I stayed right by the grand Ole Opry. And, you know, you're driving around, you're seeing, like, signs for the Johnny Cash Museum everywhere, and you're like, I'm driving down the streets that Johnny Cash drove down, you know. I could be living in the same city as, like, like I could shop at the same Kroger as Garth and Trisha, you know, and Nicole and Keith. Don't don't Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban have a house there? I don't know. You know, just the idea of, like, living someplace like that was really intoxicating this idea, but, um, but again, ultimately, you know, I turned down that job. I got back, um, that day on Saturday and I did a show that night and and I was kind of on pins and needles all day Sunday because I was just trying to make this decision, you know, and, and should I stay or should I go? And ultimately I called up the principal on Monday and I said, I just like right now it just doesn't, I'm sorry, I, I'd like to uh, continue teaching high school because it was for a middle school position and uh, I just didn't know if I could do it. Once again, very nice 
Very nice principal. I've gotten to meet some amazing people in the education system throughout this entire process. Um, charter schools mainly is where I'm looking. Because with the charter school, you know, you're still in like the public arena. You're still, uh, or you're still kind of more or less in the private arena, I, I meant to say. Um, charter schools are like a mix between public schools and private schools. You know, they get public money, but at the same time, they also rely about 40% of their funding comes from uh, private fundraising and, and grants and donations and things like that. So you still get a little bit of private autonomy, which is nice. And I, and I, I like that idea. So, so I teach at a fully private school right now. But I, I did interview for this one last job on Wednesday. I think it went very well. Um, it is for teaching high school in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I'm waiting to hear back from it. But honestly, at this point, um, you know, I've got to let my boss know on Monday what's going on. And um, the idea of picking up and moving is incredibly exciting. But at the same time, spending the rest of the summer just concentrated on that one thing. And then having to start a new job is absolutely terrifying. It's designed to be terrifying. You don't want to just like pick up and make a a dramatic decision like that, not have to face any, any blowback in your, in your self doubt. I don't know. So. But I don't know, you know, every every year or so, it generally happens around this time, around summer, when I'm out of school and I get some time for self-reflection. I do, I just have this feeling of like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was trapped in a house. Everything I did, I had to ask somebody to do. And... Uh, this feeling never goes away as an adult that like, you know, you could do whatever you want to. I mean, if it comes down to the fact of like, you know, I know I've already had one cookie, but I'm going to have another cookie. You know, I'm an adult. There's nobody to tell me what to do. And this idea that like, I'm, I'm, I'm not tied down to anything. I can, I can pick up and go. I can, I can be free. I can do other things. I don't have to go and uh, work the same job every single year. But at the same time, you know, I also believe in counting my blessings and just thinking about what I have. I do have a great job and I do like the people I work with and I do like my students. And uh, so you got to ask, you know, you're not really, tie down if you enjoy what you do, I guess. At the same time, I am incredibly stressed all the time. <laughs> I actually did a side-by-side -side comparison of myself of a picture I took of myself this time last year, I have a lot more gray in my hair. <laughs> you know, but I was watching that film, The Big Lebowski. You know that film about the dude? And he just has this lifestyle where all he does is just, like, hang out in his apartment all day and he drinks white Russians and take takes baths and 
goes out, bowls with his friends at night, and then drives around all day. Occasionally gets into adventures. Um, I always liked that movie because it depicted this like slacker lifestyle, which I would just fantasize about about living. Waking up every day, not exactly knowing where you're gonna where where the day is gonna take you. That's such a great idea. I love that idea. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's just it's. Uh, I don't, I don't, I think it would be fun for like a week and then you just get like, ugh, god damn. I don't know. You know, it, it is in times like this though, where I do wish I were a Christian still. You know, I, I was, I was raised in the Southern Baptist church and like any time you would have to, you would make a major life decision and I still see it today around people I work with or I've worked with who are Christians. If they have to quit or they have to leave or retire. Oh my gosh. Flash flood warning. Look at that. <laughs> I just got an alert on my phone. Flash flood warning. It doesn't look flooded outside my house to me. Um... So anytime a Christian leaves a job, they don't have these excuses like the rest of us do. Oh, I just want to go try something else in my life. Or um, I feel like I just need to step back or take a break. You know, we all sound like we're hemming and hawing and hedging and bobbing and weaving and just making up excuses. But if you're a Christian, you can just say, you know, God has a different plan for me. God is pointing me in another direction. And I, I've heard this over and over in my life, and everybody always says, no matter how much work they're going to inherit for that person who's leaving, because God's pointing them in another direction, I've always heard people be like, oh yeah, okay, I understand. All right. Well, God be with you. Yet, I'm not an atheist. I don't know. So, we have been, uh, my wife and I have been teaching summer camp this week, though. And as I said on last week's show, um, my wife is actually teaching this theater summer camp in the old brook well it's not really old it still exists this brookwood mall that was a major mall in the 1980s and 1990s and, and really one of my favorite malls to go to ever is the place i ever ha- i first had sabaro pizza where i first played the super nintendo entertainment system and uh but in recent years obviously it's like it's lost almost all of its occupancy. So now all the storefronts are more or less uh, just empty. Uh, but this theater that my uh, here in Birmingham that my wife is uh, teaching for this summer, um, they've taken a lot of their old storefronts and they've turned them into classrooms for the kids. So the kids come in now and these kids are 12, 13, 14 years old. And my, uh, my wife was saying, that some of her kids were saying like that they had never even been in a mall before. And one girl was like totally clueless as to what this thing was. 
and she was like, so you would just come and get lunch at the Chick-fil-A and just sit here. I mean, around all of this emptiness. And my wife is like, no, there used to be stores here. And she's like, wait, this used to be a store. My wife is like, yeah, I think it used to be a bath and body works. She's like, what's bath and body works. So, yeah, it was incredibly sad to go and see this mall because this is probably the last iteration that this mall will go through, the last gasp, the death rattle, right? This place that I used to come to on Saturdays, and I used to live that cliched American existence of just being a mall rat, you know, eating in the mall, walking around the mall, working in the mall. Cause I did work in that mall. I worked there in Christmas of 2007 and I worked a whole bunch of other uh, jobs throughout the late nineties and early two thousands in the Galleria mall. Uh, you know, mall culture was the thing. It's where you went to do everything. And now it's just like all shadow of its former self. Kids don't even know what it is anymore. You know, some of my students wear around old uh, Blockbuster staff t-shirts that they uh, that they got at the thrift store. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I've, I'm, I've become so stressed lately. It's just driving around, seeing things that I used to do all closed down. The urban decay. You know, I'm stressed out because every conceivable good memory that I had of my childhood is being mowed over, you know. Video stores are liquor stores, beauty colleges, and malls are schools and Amazon distribution centers. It's uh it's depressing. But we still got the crystal clear pure spirit of night radio going on here on the midnight citizen show i'm going to step away for just a minute and play you some music i will be back right after this
spent on the bar Just till dawn then that's where you are Out on the party getting groovy and tired Come home and forget to kiss your baby goodnight Drunk 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 Some drink takes all my gold Every morning, morning my head is sore Whiskey, gin, wines have gone down fine I'm gonna try it just one more time Drunk
and showtime, folks. Welcome back. You're here. It's Mike Booty. This is the Midnight Citizen Show in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you so much for sticking through that uh, music. Wonderful music. We had Drunk by Simon Matthewson. That last one you heard was Les Hayden, a song called Sinister from the album Telepathy. And both of those songs are available on the freemusicarchive.org from station WFMU in New Jersey. I want to thank them so much for allowing poor people like me to share in their licensing of wonderful music. So we are live right now, and uh, this is the live stream. And if you are watching live, um, thank you so much for joining me. I am in the chat, so if anyone has anything to say, anything nice to say, that'd be nice. Anything mean to say, try and wait until after the show's over. I have a weird habit of... uh, of being thrown off by negative comments. So, <laughs> um, but this show, uh, the live stream will be up, um, on Monday and the podcast will be up on uh, Sunday. So if you are listening to the show, uh, in the future, you are listening to it on the podcast, but I am also at, uh, Mike slash the midnight citizen here on the live stream at youtube.com slash Mike booty. Uh, you can find me on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, any of those great places where you get podcasts. And, um, yeah, stick around. I was thinking during that music break about, I was talking about the Big Lebowski. And it it is funny, as an adult, nothing has really changed from when I was a kid and I watched movies, and I don't know if anybody else is like this, but uh, I grew up in the golden age of kids' adventure films in the uh, 80s and 90s. Um, There was, I don't know if you would really call it terrific, but there was a prevalence of movies starring kids getting into all sorts of just dangerous adventures. And indeed, I, I learned a lot of really dangerous things from the movies. Things that I did repeat uh, in real life. Um, and uh, every time, you know, Congress has one of these uh, hearings where they uh, bring video game or Hollywood executives or something. I don't know if they've had one of these in a while, but they bring them to these hearings. They put them down in front of these really tall, skinny Bob Barker microphones and they give them like all this water to drink when they're like thinking uh and they they say like do you realize that the product that you put out the filth that you put out is damaging the youth of America and uh i i'm i'm kind of on the side of the senators and the congressmen yeah you know they they really do put out some stuff that negatively I mean, I could have died many, many times when I was a kid because I was trying to reproduce some of the actions and, in some cases, some of the violence that uh, the kids 
in the uh, in the films we're doing. Yes, no, I did that definitely. So it's like there was a, a movie called The Goonies about these kids who like root around in the sewers and things like that. <laughs> And uh, it had me honestly thinking when I was, I don't know, four or five years old when that movie came out and I saw it. They used to show it all the time in school, you know, typically toward the end of the year when the teachers were tired of thinking and teaching. And I would think like, hey, if I go into the uh, the caves behind my house, which were really mines, you know, because I'm in Alabama and there's mines everywhere. Uh, I'm going to find a sunken pirate ship and I'm going to loot it for gold and, and rich stuff, you know? <laughs> it's like the Goonies taught you to explore places um, in your own backyard. And I went back there to try and find sunken pirate ships. I didn't find any rich stuff, but I definitely found poison ivy. You know, and uh, of course the Ninja Turtles were really big. You know the Ninja Turtles. They live in the sewers. So like every time I walked by a storm drain, I would like get down on my hands and knees and like crawl and stick my head in there. Trying to like uh, smell the sweet stench of pizza because the Ninja Turtles love pizza and I knew they were down there in the sewers eating pizza and learning their karate moves I didn't smell pizza no there was not pizza coming from that sewer no um you know luckily around that same time the it television film came out and it uh, that movie probably did more to scare kids off of the idea that the sores were like a friendly place where you could go and hang out with uh, Donatello and Raphael than any other thing ever. Um. <laughs> and, you know, there was uh, also... Uh, there was this movie that came out called The Wizard. Now, this is a bad film... But it is very well beloved by people my age who grew up with Nintendo. And uh, this is a very much kind of like a Rain Man for kids. Where there's a young autistic kid who's like a video game savant. And he runs away with his older brother, played by Fred Savage from the Wonder Years. And, uh, and uh, Jenny Lewis is a really good you know indie singer-songwriter these days and they run to universal studios in California in Hollywood and uh, to, to compete in the video game uh, world championship or something like that. And this film has them uh, riding their skateboards on the interstate. And uh, this definitely, even though this is not a good film, it was available to me and I got it. And uh, 
I had a skateboard and I, I was like, man, all I like, I want to go to Universal Studios Hollywood. All I have to do then is like take my skateboard and just go a few feet down the interstate and I'll be there. And uh, this definitely led to some uh, very long conversations between me, me and my parents. So. So, like, when I was a kid, what I'm trying to say is that uh, movies taught us to do some very dangerous things. Um, but now, and, and I don't know if it's that same way for people my age or if everybody's like this, you know, because movies, obviously, one of the reasons why they're probably the most art- powerful artistic medium that will ever exist um, is because they allow you to live so vicariously through uh, the people on the screen, that you just lose yourself in them and you sometimes identify your own life with them. And when I watch films like the big Lebowski, for instance, I begin to kind of picture myself as like, I could leave, I could live this lifestyle. Like I don't need to have all the stuff that I have, you know, the big Lebowski in the film, he, the, the dude, he just, he lives on just what he needs to be happy. And uh, I live on what I need to think that what I think I need to be happy and I could get rid of a lot of stuff and just be happy and go and bowl and drink white Russians. I don't know. And I think that that would be a fantastic um, lifestyle. And then you think, wait a second, this is just the same thing as when I was a kid and I was watching the wizard and I was riding my skateboard on the interstate, you know, Uh, movies teach us dangerous things. We have to be very, very careful sometimes. I mean, before you know it, you're in the grocery store and you're writing a check for milk. Need to be careful about that. So, anyway. Well, the time has come. I want to uh, do a little bit of a toast here to, um, you know, I I started uh, this last year. I would do toast on the show to uh, actors and people that I admire who had just passed away. And this week, uh, somebody I definitely admired, an actor, uh, passed away. Uh, named uh, Ned Beatty. He passed away at 82. And, and I didn't read the obituary. I didn't read any of the um, the articles talking about him. I don't know what he died from. I know he was very... He was just old. He was up there. And he was always kind of a portly individual. you know. But uh, Ned Beatty uh, was really just a very important actor. One of, one of just, in my mind, probably one of the, the uh, four or five best character actors that ever existed. I I don't know if you would call him a character actor because he was definitely a name, you know, character actors generally people just kind of identify them as the guy who was in that thing. Um, But Ned Beatty was definitely a star of uh, certain sorts in the 1970s. Um, He was in a lot of really important films that came out and he was in a lot of unimportant films that came out. And that was kind of the essence of being a, an actor in the 70s is that you would do a lot of prestigious, important films, and then, but most of the time you would just star in like drive-in films and all that. So, you know. Uh, Ned Beatty, of course, is uh, responsible for perhaps the uh, most horrifying, probably one of the most horrifying scenes 
um, in film ever. And uh, I'm sure you know exactly which scene I'm talking about. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Yes, the scene in Network, of course. How can we forget Network? Oh, you thought I was talking about the other scene in Deliverance. Well, that's scary, too. You know, um, that's another reason why Ned Beatty is incredibly important, because um, it takes a very brave actor to do what he did in Deliverance and squeal like a pig, you know, but I won't go into that, though. But yeah, the the scene, and I am absolutely serious, the, the, the scene in uh, Network, um, written by Patty Chayefsky and performed by Ned Beatty, is perhaps when I was in high school and I first saw this film, one of the scariest scenes I had ever seen in a movie. Um, just because it was so realistic and such a just gut punch to believe that this is the way the world works. Now, if you're not familiar with the world for the, with the film network, and I tell you what, we'll, we'll pour a toast here in just a minute. Okay. After I give you a little backstory on the movie network, cause you may not have seen it. Um, and then we're going to watch the scene while we're, while we're enjoying our toast. And, um, and I'll come back and talk about it a little bit, but network is a film that came out in 1976. It was written by the uh, amazing playwright and uh, screenwriter Patty Chayefsky, who won an Academy Award for it, and directed by Sidney Lament. It's just a, a powerhouse of great performances and just an amazing satire of television. And uh, indeed, I, I watched it when I was a senior in high school for the first time and had decided that I was going to go to the University of Alabama um, for uh, communications to study journalism. And... Uh, <laughs> I didn't get the message from the movie that uh, that's really not a good pursuit. But uh, the idea, though, in the movie is that um, a man is a network news anchor. He was fairly successful early in life. But after his wife divorced him, he started to drink very heavily. And then he becomes suicidal in the film. And just one night uh, goes on the television network um, and just announces that he's going to kill himself. And suddenly, ironically, he starts getting ratings again. And people tune in, and he essentially uses the news not to tell you what's happening in the world, but to tell you what's really happening in the world. You know, To talk about how corporations own everything, and how there's very little, uh, the, the loss of the individual, and how there's absolutely no, uh, the individual really has no command over their life anymore because they've allowed television to do the thinking for them. And it's an amazingly funny and scary, uh, satire of entertainment. And, uh, so I'm going to uh, play this film, the scene for you now, if you're watching on the live stream, I'll put it up and, uh, and yeah, we're going to do a little toast, uh, to Ned Beatty now. And, uh, who died this week at 82 I don't know what you had, but I have a little bit of Maker's Mark with me. You don't just have to be, by the way, watching live to do this. You can do this anywhere you are. In the past, in the future. Here we go. This is a scene where Howard Beale, the network news anchor, who will speak very, very little in this scene, is confronted by Ned Beatty, the chairman of the board of directors um, of the company that owns the company 
that owns the network. Forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity, it is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price-cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock. 
necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. Why me? Because you're on television, dummy. Sixty million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. I have seen the face of God. You just might be right, Mr. Beale. And uh, that is one of only two scenes that Ned Beatty is in in that movie, and he was nominated for an Academy Award. And uh, normally you have to be in a lot more scenes than that in a movie to be nominated for an Oscar. But not Ned Beatty. He just needed one. Only one. And we drink to him. A wonderful actor passed away, left us this week at 82. But I, I will honestly never forget the scene in Deliverance um, at the end when, uh, you know, he's having dinner with um, that southern family in the small town right after they've been uh, rescued. And John Voight just breaks down and starts crying just because of the harrowing uh, adventure they had just been on, where Ned Beatty was sexually molested by two hillbillies uh, before Burt Reynolds kills them, or one of them, and then another one of them ends up killing their other buddy, played by Ronnie Cox, and John Voight has to go and kill the surviving hillbilly before he kills them. And John Voigt just starts breaking down at the dinner table, crying, happy to be alive, but at the same time, sad because one of his friends is dead. And through the whole thing, Ned Beatty, who should be crying because he's the one who was molested, tries to just distract everybody at the table from, from John Voigt and his tears by just talking to them about how good the food is because, you know, you're a Southern man and you can't be seen to have emotions. And, uh, it's just, um, great, great actor, honestly. was looking at the live stream and um steve says by the way that i am so far injury free yeah he made the uh, comment this week on uh, facebook that i i've actually injured myself on on both of the shows so far this season <laughs> on the first show i burnt my lip on a on a <laughs> on a slice of pizza and i think the the, the uh it's actually almost healed almost completely healed you can kind of see it there 
And then last week, of course, on the pre-show, I um, hit myself in the lip. I mean, in the uh, teeth with the microphone while I was trying to adjust it and cracked my tooth. (laughs) And this week, you can see I've got actually a foam head on the microphone. Not to cancel out all my pops and hisses, but um, to protect my teeth from the hard surface of the microphone. Oh. All right, what is going on tonight? Um, I think what we're going to do now, yeah, is uh, take, a, take a trip down to, you know where, the Video Street Video Store. Yeah, we've got some new stock there this week, so enjoy this. On the outskirts of Chicago, Illinois... Bungie Software is preparing to blur the line separating the virtual world from our own. Their next game, Halo, is still very early in the development process, but it is already very clear that it will make a massive impact on PC gaming and perhaps even change the way we look at games. Halo is a third-person sci-fi action game that depicts a great war between the human race and the Covenant a consortium of different alien races who are highly motivated to destroy a fledgling human interstellar civilization. The action will take place on a huge alien-built ring construct that orbits a gas giant in the far reaches of space, a perfect battleground for a celestial war. Uh, so the, the main character, um, the, the character that the player plays, is, is, a, is a human military officer. Um, what we're seeing here on the screen... Uh, the player is inside uh, sort of a hologram room, which uh, is showing. Uh, you've got a hologram of the the ring itself. You can see the terrain uh, on the surface of it. Um, it's orbiting a gas giant, and you can actually see a a uh, you know, image of the halo itself. Is that small blue ring? When it comes to gameplay, Halo will have a robust multiplayer play mode, much like that of Star Siege Tribes. But Bungie is devoted to creating a single-player game with a deep, non-linear storyline as well. One of the things about uh, prime characteristics about Halo is that um, it takes place in this entire, in this uh, huge, uh, completely seamless world. Uh, It's an indoor-outdoor environment uh, in which there there are sort of no breaks between... uh, uh, Making the human and alien weapons and vehicles as different as possible is the key to ensuring that players will be able to specialize in playing the human or alien sides in multiplayer games. One of the things we want to be very distinctly different in the game is the experience of playing humans and aliens. So this is the uh, yeah the anti-armor. This will be used to like take out tanks, other heavy equipment. Um, Got some cool looking animations here. Um, you'll see when I fire it, the, the barrel result revolves. It's basically got two two barrels that fires two really quick things gotta reload. Halo's physics model uses highly advanced mathematical computations to create a moving world that parallels our own. This concept was made clear to us in the demonstrations provided by physics programmer extraordinaire Charles Goh. If you watch the guy here as I break. Um, I speed up and then I break. He goes flying forward, and same way he goes backwards. And it's harder to see actually with this, but if I turn, you can see him leaning out there. 
Progressively designed in every way, Bungie's new 3D engine pushes contemporary 3D hardware standards well beyond the current norm. With the entire game world rendered in 32-bit color, it is one of the first games to truly harness the power hidden deep within the current generation of graphics accelerators and depict landscapes that come alarmingly close to our own. The concept of exploring this vast and resplendent world is intriguing in itself. But when all of the pieces are in place, there will be much more to do than just sit on the bench and enjoy the rolling waves. It is clear to us that if Bungie's dream is fully realized, PC gaming will have yet another path to follow. A path that will surely lead us all to the next level of gaming. the heart of Dallas, Texas, a storm is about to erupt, one that has been brewing for three tumultuous years. At the eye of this storm rests a game developer that has recently kept quiet about its next big project. Until now. Hi, welcome to Ion Storm. Ion Storm is putting the final touches on its most anticipated title, Daikatana. A massive time-traveling journey that whisks players through 25th century Japan, ancient Greece, medieval Norway, and San Francisco, circa 2030. Impresario John Romero, lead designer of Daikatana, gives us a telling glimpse of the game's premise. John Romero, game designer of Daikatana. Never heard of you. The game, you don't have sidekicks. Uh, you're just trying to rescue Mikiko. And... Uh, as you go through the game, you 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 meet other people like your sidekicks, and, and they join you, and you uh, continue on with them. And when the sidekick, if the sidekicks die, the game's over. So it's it's very important that you keep your sidekicks alive. But surely a sidekick should be able to defend himself. Daikatana's advanced AI will take care of that, and then some. Sidekick AI it uses uh, the fundamental AI that's used for the uh, the movement of all the monsters, the node-based system. But they all have they, they both have their own special code to do ambient movements and, and make decisions on what they should do based off of what you're doing. And also, you get to give them commands on what they should do in the game, like come over here, attack, don't attack, you know, stay where you're at. Unlike many first-person shooters, Daikatana will be underlined by a deep story fueled by the player's interactions with right. his sidekicks. Start, start off in uh, 2455 AD in future Japan. You're trying to uh, rescue Makiko from uh, Ibi from Kajimishima's fortress. Ah! 
Ion Storm's voluptuous level designer and professional gamer Stevie Case describes the game's extraordinary appeal. You start out in, in futuristic Japan, and it's all industrial and dark, and then you move on to ancient Greece, and, and that's looking really cool and different, and then you're going to some medieval stuff, and then you end up in futuristic San Francisco. So there's a lot of opportunity in there to do lots of different kind of mapping. It's really exciting. I think that the Greek episode is really catching up as my, my second mm-hmm. favorite at this point. Uh, I didn't like it at first, but it, it's come so far, and it, it's very organic now, mm-hmm. and the buildings really feel huge like they should. When you come up on something, it's, it's difficult to give you a real sense of scale in a game. I mean, to make the player feel dwarfed by a structure. Mm -hmm. And I think we're starting to achieve that with that episode, and I I love that feeling. When it comes to play modes and depth, Daikatana will be nothing short of a meaty game. Then there's a deathmatch co-op, which will let you have a bunch of people going through the game. And the, the whole goal is just to get to the exit of the map, and whoever reaches the exit first gets a point. Um... Then there's going to be CTF, and then there's going to be Death Tag, which is a Doom 2-style uh, deathmatch mod, and we'll do it in Daikatana a little bit differently, but it's, it's a really fun way to play. It has been a long time coming, but it appears that Daikatana will finally be unleashed upon us all at the end of the year. The long wait just may be worth it. of two cities a tale of two games there i themed the video street video store tonight i don't normally do that uh, but i found these really two in uh, highly entertaining uh, news reports from the late 1990s filmed at more or less the exact same time uh, the first one was for uh, Halo that was developed by Bungie Software out of uh, Chicago, Illinois. And, of course, went on to be just an immensely successful game in a way that my high school students talk about it today as if, like, I had never heard of it. They're like, have you ever played Halo or have you ever heard of Halo? And I'm like, kid, I invented Halo. Uh, not really, but I mean, I was there the the month that Halo came out. I was there, <laughs> and I went over to my friend Fairhan's birthday, and we were sitting in there in his apartment uh, playing Halo uh, multiplayer. Everybody was taking turns shooting me and cold cocking me with their guns, and uh, we were just going around all night doing a cold cock round, just seeing how many people we could cold cock in one round. <laughs> just because I think we were high school boys and we enjoyed saying cold cock. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, the worst of times with Daikatana and John Romero, uh, who was, of course, one of the Massively successful creators of Doom, who essentially had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. 
And he created this game, Daikatana, which went on to be one of the biggest um, video game failures, one of the most highly anticipated games of 1999-2000. And uh, it just tanked horribly. And, you know, there there are obviously really good reasons why that happened. Uh, I think it was just like a sophomore sophomore syndrome. You know, a lot of people do something. They have amazing success. Uh, they don't quite do so well on their second or third outing because the anticipation and the expectation is too great. And I definitely sympathize with John Romero there. But, of course... Uh, I mean, he comes across in that last report you heard as an incredibly arrogant guy where he can't even be bothered to, like, say his own name without, like, just sounding a little bit, flan- you know, arrogant. He's like, I'm John Romero. I'm lead game designer, Daikatana. What are you doing here? Like, he just doesn't really seem like, you know, he's like, you know who I am. Why do I have to say my name? And then, of course, one of his, like, sycophants, one of his uh, follower game designers, Next to him is like, is like says sarcastically, I never heard of you. <laughs> and uh, they got like Stevie Case there, who you just heard an interview with. And I love how they interview her in that news report with like, you know, Daikatana's voluptuous level designer, Stevie Case, which I think is like the first time voluptuous and, and level designer have ever gone hand in hand in a news report about a video game before, but. What you did not see, if you're listening to the audio-only version of this uh, of this episode, <laughs> is uh, the camera panning down to Stevie Case Stevie Case's chest as she was talking, because they know exactly they're they're a video game review show, and they know exactly who their audience is. You know, it's not voluptuous level designer, so. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that stuff, man. So, uh, what else we got tonight? Um, I think I wanted to talk about one more thing. So, one of the things that I was actually thinking of uh, showing you on the Video Street Video Store tonight was uh, another news report from the 1980s, and I I decided to abandon it because it it went on for a little bit too long. Uh, But it was about this uh, Max Headroom uh, video hack and, and... 1987. Um, and you may remember this. Um, I certainly am not old enough to remember this, but I, I've heard about it many times. Um, and I believe it was WGN in Chicago was actually hacked in 1987 during the middle of a football game with this uh, guy in a Max Headroom mask. You know, Max Headroom, kind of the video computer generated image of this, like, I don't know, demon inside of a television. Uh, and, uh, and it was just this hack that kind of interrupted the football game and led to this major FCC investigation and, uh, really, uh, began this national conversation about hackers and what they could do to our normal experience. And I found that interesting because, well, one, of course, there's been a, a couple of very famous, um, hacks lately going on in America. Of course, everybody says that the 2016 election was tampered with by Russian hackers and, you know, Donald Trump and his Trumpets and his other supporters, his Karens and Kins. <laughs> See, I did a call back there. Uh, 
you know, they're, they're all talking about how last year's election was hacked and all that. I don't know. But this uh, colonial pipeline, ha- you know, hack uh, definitely affected everyday Americans like you and me. Or everyday people, you know. You may be listening to me somewhere else. But, yeah, this colonial pipeline hack caused gas prices to shoot up. They're still kind of up. And uh, it affected me because I, I have to fill up my tank at least once or twice a week, especially if I'm delivering food uh, for Grubhub. And so it's really uh, it's really interesting that, uh, you know, these hacks, they've gone from being like these fun. I feel like, you know, everything was much f- more fun in the 80s and 90s. And maybe I'm just looking back on the past, like with rose tinted glasses. But, you know, how conspiracy theories are really interrupting the public discourse right now and they're 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 really leading to some very negative things um these conspiracy theories you know like with QAnon and and all that and conspiracy theories used to be fun you know they used to just be about aliens and area 51 and the kennedy assassination they used to be fun to entertain with your friends over like a couple of beers or something like that and now they're just dark and they 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 lead to people just locking themselves up in dark rooms for hours and hours with computers going on and sharing these memes um and then hackers you know like hacking used to be fun you know there was that image of like that 1990 film film five 1995 film hackers see i've been talking for a while and i've had a little whiskey so i'm starting to slur my words but you know, in that movie Hackers in 1995, you know, they, they, they hack into a television system and try to play their favorite episodes of The Outer Limits. It's nothing like this now with this colonial pipeline business where it, like, really infuriates people and makes them angry and and leads to them, you know, paying, like, 10 cents more at the pump than they than they did the day before. You know, we're just coming on with, like, a Max Headroom mask, but... So anyway, and and I, I was thinking also about when I was a kid, and, and this could have been very well in 1987, watching television with my family, and we're watching the movie Harry and the Hendersons, and I don't know if that movie, when that movie came out, but we're watching it on television, not a videotape, we were definitely watching it on television, it came on, it was like the movie of the week or something, you know, and Harry and the Hendersons is this movie about like a Bigfoot that moves in with like this typical suburban family and uh we're watching it and all of a sudden just i remember the signal being interrupted and there was like this demon looking guy against this static television background and he's like laughing and laughing and laughing and then it goes back to harry and the and the hendersons and of course it scared me. And many years later, I was thinking about the idea that like, maybe this was a dream. Maybe I dreamt it up. And this is just, you know, because when you're a kid, you have a feeling of, you know, when you're thinking back to your earliest memories of being a child, sometimes you're wondering if those memories, you can really trust them. Were they actually just dreams, you know? So I was thinking it was a dream. And then Years later, I'm about 21, 22 years old, and I'm talking to my best friend's girlfriend. And I'm telling her this story because we're talking about Harry and the Hendersons. And she's like, oh, my God. Yeah, I remember that. I'm like, "You, you were, are you serious? 
So apparently she has the same memory. But again, I don't know if this is just the power of suggestion or whatever. But, you know, the, 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 the deal is simply that um, this incident did happen, but it happened in Chicago. It didn't happen in Birmingham, Alabama. But then again, maybe it could have, and it just wasn't widely reported because it was in Birmingham, Alabama. Which, again, I live in a small place. They don't write music about this place. They don't make movies about it. It's not like Nashville, Tennessee. And that's all I have time for tonight. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Midnight Citizen Show. I am at MikeBooty.com slash The Midnight Citizen. I'm also at the Overnightscape Underground on SUG, O-N-S-U-G.com, which is me and a bunch of other amazing podcasters doing our thing. <laughs> Founded by Frank Edward Noor in 2009. And I've actually got a, I've got a Zoom call with all those guys tomorrow, so I'm excited. I get to get on and talk to other, all my other podcasting friends, and that'll be fun. Um... So, yes, until next time, guys, have a wonderful week, wonderful summer week. Keep your eyes open and keep meddling with the primal forces of nature. Keep your eyes open. Thank you. Thank you.